Thanks for joining us on the Hope Podcast. Hope Community Church exists to love people where they are and help them grow in their relationship with Jesus Christ. By pursuing this relationship together, we can change the world. For message notes and links to big things going on at Hope, check out the notes section below. When you're done listening to this episode, take a minute to follow us here, subscribe to our YouTube channel, and download our free app. From there, you can find all of our recent message content, additional resources, and more. If you like what you hear today, we encourage you to share this with your friends or family. Enjoy. Doing all right? Good. Uh, We're continuing our series, This Is Our God. If you have a Bible or you can take out your phone, go ahead and and click over or turn over to John chapter 4. John chapter 4. And before that, two things real quick uh, as you're turning there. First, uh, any men in the room or at our campuses right now? Yeah? Some of you are not sure. I get that, you know. It's hard being a guy, right? I try to be most days. And uh, on top of that, if you're married, then you have the whole career aspect. You got the husband aspect. Uh, you got the parenting aspect. It's hard being a dude. And uh, it's really hard if you're doing it alone. And you weren't meant to do it alone. And so uh, back by popular demand, we're bringing back a really cool event um, that's impacted my life. That's right. Man Night is coming back. And there was much rejoicing. Yes, there was. So it's going to be um, January 22nd from 7 to 9 p.m. at the Rock campus and we're going to have speakers. It's going to be so encouraging. Um, We're also going to feed you and it's not salads and fruit. It's Big Mike's barbecue. That's right. So uh, you can invite every man that you know. Wives, you want your husbands to be here. Students, you want your dads to be here. Uh, So let's come on out and let's celebrate together. That's the first thing. Uh, Second thing, I have some good news that uh, I Uh, about our family that I've been wanting to share for a few weeks but haven't really had the opportunity. As you know, Jenny, my wife, and I have been foster parents to a beautiful girl since 2020. And the goal is always to reunify the kids with their birth parents. That's always the goal. But in some uh, cases, that doesn't work out. And so that was the case with our foster daughter. Uh, Actually, I can't call her a foster daughter anymore because she is our adopted daughter. Uh, So let me introduce to you, yeah. For the first time, Malaysia Grace Gardner. Isn't she cute? Yes. That's her posing for a camera, though. Go to the next slide. This is her real personality. There you go. She runs the house. Uh, She is a gift to the world and our family. Uh, We couldn't be happier, so thank you. Thank you to those of you that prayed for us, um, that helped us along the way. But there's a reason I shared that and showed that. Um, I looked it up last year. As of October 2023, there were over 400 kids um, under the age of 18 in the Wake County foster care system. Um, And so we have an amazing uh, ministry called Fostering Hope. If you're thinking about being a foster parent, um, I would check that out. Um, But Malaysia was different because it's weird saying her name on stage, but I can do that. Malaysia was only a year and a half old. Uh, when she came to us, most of the children that need help are older, so elementary age, middle school, or high school. And unfortunately, a lot of these amazing kids um, have spent years in the system. So ideally, they would find the perfect placement the very first foster home they go to. But that is not always the case. Sometimes a tragedy rocks the foster parents, and they can't provide a home for them anymore. Sometimes it's just not a good fit. And the sad reality is that a lot of these kids have to go to two or three or four or five or more different placements before they find the right one. And that's really hard on the kids. I was talking with um, a man who was a foster father a few years ago that had recently been placed with a set of older children. And it wasn't the kid's first placement. And I asked him how it was going. And he said it was okay. Um, it had been a few months and the kids were still a little standoffish. Uh, they, were, they were having a really hard time kind of letting their guard down. 
And even after a few months, you could tell that they still kind of felt like visitors instead of part of the family. And that makes sense. Like if you put yourself in their shoes, imagine your parents had a hard time um, providing you with, with a place to stay or safety or with food. And so some strangers come in and whisk you off one day and bring you to a different house with different parents and different food and different smells and different rules and uh, different traditions. And you're not sure how long you're gonna be there. In fact, you don't really wanna be there long because you wanna go back home. But then after a few months, that placement doesn't work out. And so you have to switch homes and there's really good reasons for it. Like everyone involved, the guardian ad litem, the workers, the parents, they're all fighting for your best interest. But how it feels is that this foster parent did not want you and for some reason, your birth parents don't want you either. And so you have to go to a new home with new parents. And then a few months later, it happens again. And because of something that you've gone through or because of some trauma that you went through, you've had problems at school and maybe you've gotten suspended or you've gotten expelled. And maybe the foster parent just wasn't equipped to kind of walk you through those struggles. And trauma is a weird thing if you've been through it, even though it happened to you even though you weren't the one that caused it, it's so easy to internalize it and think that it's your fault or that because something horrible happened to you, you are a horrible person. That's just the way our brains work. And so a lot of these kids, these amazing kids, grow up with this habit of keeping people at arm's length, kind of afraid to let people in because they don't know how long they're going to be there. They don't know if they're going to be rejected again. And the guy I was talking to said that one of the kids hadn't even unpacked their suitcase yet, and it had been a few months, which means that um, the day they moved in, they put the suitcase on the dresser, and they would wash their clothes and just put it right back in the suitcase, and they would take a shower and brush their teeth and put it right back in the suitcase. Why? Because they're prepared for rejection. They prepared themselves in their minds to be pushed away again, and so the suitcase just sits on the dresser in the room that they've been told, this is really your room. In the house, they've been told, hey, this is really and truly your house. In the family, they've been told that they're really a part of. But they just keep the suitcase packed because they're ready to be pushed away again, in a way. And that stuck with me, um, that image, because I've met and even now know a lot of people that feel that way in their relationship with God. Like they've been told that God loves them. They've even tried to believe that God loves them. But they have so much baggage from the past or these clear memories of all the bad stuff that they've done or the wrong stuff done to them that they can never quite believe that God can really and truly love them, like unconditionally. Maybe like a future version of them when they get all their stuff under control, but not them, not now. And it's like God asked them to move into the house, but the suitcase is still packed. And God says, hey, you're my child. But they're not living like that. Um, maybe that's someone you know. Maybe that's you. This might sound weird, but that was me uh, for long seasons of my life. And even some days I, I still struggle with this. That might be shocking for a pastor to say that. But for some reason, shame has been a shaping influence in my life. I don't know why. And one of the hardest things for me to believe in life is that God truly and unconditionally loves me. And one of the hardest aspects of God's character for me to wrap my head around is his grace, his, his unimaginable grace. Well, there's a beautiful picture of someone like me 
maybe someone like you, a picture of someone who struggled to believe that God is gracious and they don't have to prove themselves. And we're going to read it um, in John chapter 4. As you can probably already tell, this is going to be a little bit of a heavy message. That's okay. Um, But it's not going to be complicated. We're just going to read some verses. I'll talk a little bit. Read some verses. I'll talk a little bit. And then I'm going to give us all a moment, including myself, to respond to what we read here. But let's pick it up in verse 3. It says, Jesus left Judea and departed again for Galilee. So this is when Jesus is, basically his ministry was walking around a lake with 12 disciples. And so he's doing that. And it says this in verse 4. And he had to pass through Samaria. Underline that word, had. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. That's in the book of Genesis. And Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well, and it was about the sixth hour. Now let me give you a quick history lesson. And I hesitate to do these things because you don't have to know all the history to understand the Bible. You can just pick it up and read it. You don't have to be like a Bible dork to, for Jesus to speak to you through it. But in this case, it's going to help the story come a little a bit alive. About 900 B.C., there was a civil war in Israel. And the northern kingdom separated from the southern kingdom. And the northern kingdom set their capital, their new capital, in Samaria. Well, then in 722 B.C., about 722 years before Jesus, um, the Assyrians, bad guys like the Babylonians and the Persians, they came in, conquered the northern area, kicked out like half the Jews, moved in a whole bunch of Assyrians, and these Assyrians and these Jewish people began to set up a new way of life. So they married each other, they had kids, uh, they mixed their culture and their religion. And so the Jewish people from the south began to hate the Samaritans. Not only because they started a civil war and killed a bunch of them, but they married the terrorists that had attacked their country. Well, in 100 B.C., there was this uh, renegade Jew named Manasseh, and he got kicked out of the southern kingdom because he was crazy and he was violent. And he moved to Samaria, and he started a new religion. And he built a new temple on a mountain in Samaria And uh, he said the first five books of the Bible, yep, those are true. The rest aren't because those are pretty pro-Jewish. And it was kind of a violent cult. In fact, the Samaritans were known to attack and murder the Jews that were traveling through Samaria on pilgrimage to the temple. So with that in mind, the Jews did not like the Samaritans. They were a people that created a new ethnicity by marrying their enemies. They killed you. They created a false Um, heretical religion that taught that you were evil and you should be killed. And so there was deep hatred between the Jews and the Samaritans. To a Jew, the Samaritan was less than, was unworthy of dignity, unworthy of respect, really unworthy of life. And so most Jews going from Galilee down to Jerusalem would avoid all these Samaritan towns. In fact, they would walk three extra days to get around it, but not Jesus. It says he intentionally goes to this place to this exact well at this exact hour. Remember that. Now, if you've ever been to the Middle East, you know you don't just go walking around outside at noon. It's incredibly hot. So you don't walk out there even to get water. And so the well at this hour would have been deserted. So imagine a deserted well. People are probably on the rooftops or in their houses kind of looking out. And this Jewish guy walks up to this well and just sits down. Apparently he doesn't have a bucket, doesn't have a cup to draw water. Um, But his whole reason for coming appears at that time. Verse 7, a woman from Samaria came to draw water. Now this tells us a lot about the person that she is. She's coming to the well when no one else is around. She knows they're not going to be there. 
So she's avoiding people. She's putting herself in extreme physical discomfort so that she doesn't have to face people. Now, we don't know why at this point. But as she approached the well, I'm sure everyone looking on was just like shocked. Like it was happening in slow-mo. Like here is a Jewish rabbi sitting at this well. Here's a Samaritan woman. And they're just kind of waiting to see what happens. And and maybe she's shocked to see him. Maybe this woman even turns around to leave. But Jesus calls out, verse 7 again, Jesus said to her, Hey, can you give me a drink? For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. My buddy Curtis, who's a pastor, he preached through this. And he points out it's still true today. Isn't it funny how it takes one woman to get enough water for the day, but it takes 12 dudes to get enough food? Like, why have you ever sent your husbands to the grocery store? It's a disaster, right? Like, I've been there. I'm like, yeah, 11 more guys. I might be able to pull this off. Anyway, it's the only joke in the whole sermon. You're right. You're welcome. Um, in these days, a Jewish rabbi, which is what Jesus was, he wouldn't speak to even his wife in public, let alone another woman. So he's speaking, and it's not a Jewish woman. It's a Samaritan woman, but he's doing more than talking. He's asking for her to give him a drink out of her bucket, out of her cup. So the Samaritan woman's saliva would have been on that cup, and that would have been unclean. So he's breaking every single social norm at this moment. So the people watching, if they weren't shocked before, they certainly are now. And the woman's shocked too. Verse 9, the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. So Jesus is just breaking down every single social custom. But in this moment, Jesus doesn't care. He doesn't care what the people looking think. He doesn't care what the crowds in their houses are saying. His attention is on this woman. He only cares about her. And he moves closer to her and he begins a personal conversation. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Now that term, we spiritualize it, right? Living water. Um, But it can just mean spring water. Um, It's used in the Old Testament as spiritual. But remember the Samaritans only read the first five books. So maybe she didn't read that part. So she just thinks, hey, you, you know where there's a spring somewhere? And she says that. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well's deep. Where do you get that spring water, that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself as did his sons and his livestock. Like, Okay, if you know where a hidden spring is, why are you asking me to drink out of here? And how come we haven't found, what are you selling? Like, is this like snake oil stuff? What's going on? But notice, she doesn't push him away. In fact, she's letting her guard down a little bit. She's gone from you, Jew, to now, sir. So for some reason, this Jewish man is treating her with dignity and respect. And so she's doing the same for him. Verse 13, Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. So instead of talking about physical water and physical thirst, Jesus starts talking about spiritual water and spiritual thirst. She doesn't understand that yet. She will. But it's kind of um, a profound thing that John's recording here because Jesus for all of eternity, he's been fully God, right? And only recently has he become fully man. So he's just walked around in the desert. He's parched. He's thirsty physically. That's a relatively new feeling for Jesus. But what he's feeling physically, he knows this is what this woman is feeling. 
spiritually. In fact, that's part of why he's come, to quench that spiritual thirst that she feels inside. But look at what the woman says. It's really revealing. Verse 15, the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. So she's not like picking up what he's laying down. But notice she says, all right, I'll buy it. Give me some of that water so I don't have to come here again. She wants to avoid this moment in her daily routine. Coming to this place to draw water at this hour. Why? Why is this place, this moment so painful for her? Why does she want to avoid it? Well, Jesus reveals why in the next verse. Verse 16, Jesus said to her, go call your husband and then come here. And the woman answered him, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, you're right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you've said is true. I want to pause here for a moment. Because depending on your background with church, or if you've heard some sermons on this topic, you might be bringing a ton of assumptions to this text. I know I did when I sat down to study it. I bet if before the service I went out into the lobby and grabbed like 10 people that grew up in church and just said, hey, I'm preaching on the woman at the well, what was her deal? Like, what was her problem? What's that thing that held her back from Jesus? I bet eight or nine out of 10 of them would say, well, she was an adulterer. She was an adulterer. She was a promiscuous woman. That's why Jesus called her out. And I've heard three or four sermons that basically said that. She was looking for fulfillment and sex and relationships, that's what Jesus was trying to get her to stop. But when I sat down and read this text this week and last week and reread it and reread it, guess what? It never says that. Jesus doesn't say anything about adultery, nothing at all. Now, I don't think she's perfect. She's living with a dude that's not her husband. I don't think they have separate bedrooms, you know? But Jesus doesn't say anything about her sleeping around on her previous five husbands. Maybe she did, but we don't know that. Maybe they all died, which would make sense why the sixth guy is like, you know what, I'm good, you know. We don't know. But what we do know is that back in those days, marriage was not equal. That's why Jesus in the New Testament's teaching that husbands and wife are equal, co-heirs of God's grace, that was so provocative and angering and shocking to the Jews and the Romans. We also know that divorce could only be initiated by the husbands. And we know that they could do it for any reason. Don't like the dress she's wearing one day? Divorce her. Don't like the food? Divorce her. Which is why Jesus brings it up on the Sermon on the Mount. Hey, stop doing that. If there's adultery, I understand, but for no other reason. And we do know that divorce was almost a death sentence to women back then. They weren't educated. They weren't allowed to have careers. So when a woman was divorced, she only had a few options. She could starve, or she could get a husband as quickly as she could, or she could beg, or she could turn to a life of prostitution. And we also know that when someone was in sin, Jesus usually, not always, but usually calls them out. Even if they put their faith in him, he says, all right, your faith has made you well, but go and sin no more. But he doesn't do that here. And so for all those reasons, it could be her problem, but I don't think so. I don't think adultery is the problem Jesus is trying to fix. I think it's her shame. I mean, think about it. She's been told five times by people that are supposed to love her forever. By people that are supposed to be committed to her 
and sickness and in health until death do us part. Five times she's been told unmistakably, you are not wanted, you are not worthy, you're replaceable, you're not loved. And now the sixth guy won't even give her her last name. Maybe there's been infidelity, maybe not. Maybe there was a death with the first one. Maybe she was a victim, the second one or the third one. But you have to believe that by the fourth or fifth one, her guard probably went up. She just expected to be pushed away, to be shunned. And so she's kept people at arm's length. She, she hasn't let the past few into her heart. Maybe it's just been an arrangement. Hey, I'll provide sex and I'll provide kids and you provide food and you provide shelter. The, the, the suitcase is there in the new house with the new man. But she's just refusing to unpack it. Maybe the sixth guy wants to get married. Maybe she's the one that says, no, no, no. I, I've seen how this goes down. You're just going to eventually push me away and reject me, and I'm not doing that again. I'm not going to let someone in and be pushed away again. And that's why she hates coming to this place, to this well at this moment, because she has to come out in public. And she knows that everyone has made up their minds about her, just like we have assumptions that we bring to the text, so everyone in her life had assumptions about her life. That's why she comes at this hour when everyone else is inside to avoid the whispers behind her back or to avoid the glares of judgment. Like everyone wants to avoid her so she avoids them. They thought she was dirty, unclean. All the women probably thought she was a threat to their husband. She's looked down on. She's despised. She's been seen as, as less than human. So she's a lost woman, we know that, who has probably never experienced true love or intimacy or grace, or if she had, it was a long time in the past. And every day at noon on the dot, she's forced to remember that and face all of that pain and all of that shame at this well at noon. Jesus, give me this water so I don't have to come here again. And that's why I think John records, that's why Jesus had to come here. That's why the heart of his father led him to this place and this moment. That's why he's going against every single social norm, breaking every social rule to meet this woman really at the epicenter of her shame. Could Jesus have found her in a back alley corner at 9 a.m.? Absolutely. Could Jesus have knocked on her door at 6 p.m. and said, hey, can you invite me in for dinner? Yeah, but he comes to this place. Why? This might sound like blasphemy a little bit, but isn't it true that sometimes it's kind of easy to believe that God loves you? Like when you're in church and you got your hands up and you're dressed all nice, got a smile on your face, and you've been knocking it out of the park as a parent or as a spouse or as a student for the past week or month. Some days it's like, I get how God could possibly love me. But then there's some moments, some places in your life where you're like, no way. No way God could love me. The parts we try to hide from God, those, those eight or nine minutes after we blow up in anger, we punch a wall or we just yell at our kids. Or those few hours in the morning after a, a night of partying and you're looking at the text like, why did I send that? And you're trying to remember what you did and your head's pounding and you have that hangover. 
or those few moments after you close the computer again and there's that shame and that guilt that lust always brings, you know. On our good days, maybe God could love you. But there's some moments where like, no, no, no. No way God could love me here. That's why Jesus came here for her. That's why he came to the reminder of all of her failures and all of her shame. Jesus comes here and he says, yeah, I know you. I knew you would be here. I know you hate here. That's why I came here. That's why I walked so far in the sun until I almost fainted. I know everything about you. I know the lies that people whisper behind your back. I know the truth you try to keep behind closed doors. I know you, every single part of you. And I'm here in front of everyone that judges you and condemns you. And instead of pushing you away, like most people in your life, I want to draw you near. Well, that's a lot to take in. That's uncomfortable. And the grace of God, when you actually experience it, it is uncomfortable. And so she changes the subject. Verse 19, the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. So she starts talking about religion. She doesn't like his gaze on her. So she's trying to move it off and just talk about religion. And isn't it so much easier to share our opinions about Jesus as opposed to responding to Jesus? But that's what he wants, a personal response. 21, Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. I love that he added that word, you. He didn't say we, he said you. I I know it's gonna happen in your life. (laughs) You're gonna be changed by this grace. Verse 22, you worship what you don't know, we worship what we know for salvations from the Jews, but the hour is coming and and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. And the woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ, just means king. And when he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. And we're not gonna go into all this, but basically she's like, okay, you're a prophet. I can see that now. You know stuff about me that no one knows. Stuff I don't really want anyone else to know. You know stuff about God that I don't know. So maybe you can tell me, where, where can I go to get that spiritual water you talked about? Like that's a metaphor, I get it now. So, so where do I go to get that? Where do I go to get that? fresh start? Where do I go to leave all this pain and all this shame and all this judgment behind? Like, which mountain? What place of work? Because I've been looking and I haven't found it. Or in our day, hey, what, what church or what book or what author or what podcast or what system? And maybe that's you. Maybe that's why you are here today. Maybe that's why you've been coming to Hope for a week or for a few months or for a few years. Because you've been asking, hey, what do I have to do? Where do I have to go to undo what I've done? Or to heal from the stuff that's been done to me? To to start afresh, to escape what I currently am? And maybe 
you've been taking notes on my sermons and other people's sermons, and you've been taking notes on books, and you've tried technique after technique, and you've tried system after system, and for some reason you still feel dirty, you still feel unclean. I've been there, I felt that, but you can't just stop looking because you can't stay here. So she's like, Jesus, what do I have to do? Where do I have to go? And Jesus turns to her and says, it's easy, me. Like the forgiveness and the grace and the redemption and the mercy that you've been looking for. It's not where and it's not what and it's not how. It's who and it's me. And I would have loved to be there for that final exchange. In fact, on the new heavens and the new earth, I'm going to tap Jesus on the shoulder. Probably a line, I guess. And just say, hey, can you do one of those replay moments? Because if you were there, you could see her staring at the face of Jesus and realizing that the God that she had been avoiding her whole life, because she just assumed, well, he's just like every other man that's pushed me down and pushed me away. The God that knew everything about her, more than she thought he knew, was right there before her, looking her in the face, And when Jesus was looking, he just saw her eyes just filled with shame. But when she looked out, she saw eyes of grace. And there's no judgment. And there's no anger. And in that moment, that single experience with the grace of God, at the epicenter of her pain and her shame, her entire life, change and I bet you could see it in her face just all of that fear and shame just melt away and this joy just replace it you can actually see the change verse 27 just then his disciples came back and they marveled that he was talking with a woman but no one said what do you seek or why are you talking with her They're like Jesus is crazy like we're used to it now but notice this these aren't just words these are important So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? That's powerful. She leaves, remember her water jar, this this area, that's the symbol of her shame. And she leaves it behind And then she runs to all the people she's been avoiding. (laughs) She runs towards everyone who judged her and hated her. It's because now she knows the God of the universe loves her and they don't have any power over her anymore. They can't hurt her anymore. And she runs to where she has to look all of them in the face and notice what she talks about. She speaks freely about her past. She reveals the very things she's been trying to hide. She's like, hey, you, Jim, You know those horrible things you say about me? About how I'm a cheater and I'm a failure and you wouldn't be caught dead and hanging out with me? Well, a lot of that's a lie, but some of it's true. But I met this man. And this man at the well, he told me everything that I ever did. And he didn't run. And he wasn't shocked. And he wasn't surprised. He didn't push me away. He knew everything I'd ever done. And he loved me. Right there in the middle of it. And maybe he can do that with you. Maybe he'll welcome you as well. Maybe he'll welcome everyone. Maybe he welcomes anyone. 
but you got to come and see if you can experience what I just did. And she starts ministering to others, not in spite of her shame, but out of her shame, the source of her shame. And so this one experience with the shocking, unimaginable grace of God changes her life. It's like she's released from prison. And she walks away completely free from all the things that have held her back and held her down. Now John's story ends here, basically. Um, But there are a few very credible church historians that tell us that this woman did not remain a nameless Samaritan woman at the well. They give her the name of Fotini or Fotina. You can look her up. And after this experience with the grace of Jesus, um, she devotes her life to telling as many people as she can about the experience she had with Jesus and inviting them to do the same. Um, She's actually probably the very first Christian missionary in in history. Uh, She took the good news of Jesus not just to this town, but to the next one and the next one and the next one and to all of Samaria. You know when the disciples were given the Great Commission? You will make disciples in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. By the time they got the guts to actually take the gospel to Samaria, guess who greeted them? Christians that were led to the Lord because of this woman. Um, And then along with... um, those, her two sons that were converted with her, she brought the gospel to North Africa. And um, that's the end of the earth Jesus was talking about. And her ministry was so powerful and so countercultural that Nero was forced to kill her as a martyr. And her blood was the seed of the early church. So not only did God freely forgive her and love her, but he used her and the rest of her life in a powerful way. So she went from a maligned, and misunderstood woman to one of the first and greatest missionaries in the early church. Why? Because she experienced and received the grace of God. And God wants that for you. So I know I did this last week, but if you could bow your heads and close your eyes. I want you to go, it's painful, but I want you to go to that place where your shame is the toughest, the most uncomfortable. I want you to go to that place where you're like, man, there's no way God could love me there. What's your well, you know? And then I want you to vision Jesus going to that place, and I just want you to look into his eyes. And I want you to see that even there, there's no judgment, there's no anger, there's just grace. And it's not because he doesn't take sin seriously. He takes it very seriously. So much so that Jesus went to the cross. It's just that that sin that you did or that was done to you, it's been paid for. And I want you to believe today that you can leave that jar right there. You can unpack your bags. When God says you're his son or you're his daughter, he means it. And Malaysia came into our life at a year and a half and she's got me wrapped around that little finger. She can do whatever she wants and I will love her until the day that I die. And my fatherly love is but a fraction of the love and the concern and the care and the grace that your father has for you. And you're never gonna step into that purpose 
You're never gonna walk into that mission until you just believe that he loves you as much as he says he does. So would you believe that today? If you've never believed that, it's a free gift that you can accept. If you've never accepted that grace, would you just pray something like this? God, it's so hard to believe, but I believe it. (laughs) I believe that Jesus went to the cross, died for my sin, and is offering that grace today. And Father, I want to receive it. If you prayed that prayer, would you let someone know about that today? Maybe, Pastor, if you're online, you can just click the button that they're gonna put on the screen now or there's a button to raise your hand. But for everyone else, maybe you just wanna take a few moments. We're gonna give you space to just respond, to just talk to Jesus. We're gonna play a song about grace that you can stand and praise him for. Maybe you need some prayer. Maybe it's not what you did, but it's what's been done to you that makes you feel unclean, makes you feel dirty. We're gonna have people that would love nothing more to pray for you. They're gonna be at all of our campuses. They're gonna be at the front or at the sides or around the back. Just you can look up. They're probably moving to place right now online. You can go out to a different chat room or click on this button for prayer. But whatever it is, let's not walk out of here unchanged. Okay? So Father, thank you for your grace. We believe, Lord. Help our unbelief. I pray for freedom. I pray for fresh starts. And I pray for sons and daughters that really believe in the love of their father. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.